Good morning. Well, <clears throat> it's not Senior High Sunday, and it's not 1020, but rather 1120. So there's two things you might be thinking right off the bat, and neither of those are indeed the fact. So, But I'm very happy to be able to be with you, even though it's not Senior High Sunday. Um, so like I do in the high school, even though it's not Senior High Sunday, uh, I always like to begin with a question. So I'm going to do that this morning as well. And it's not a rhetorical question. I, I really want to hear from you what you uh, think about it. And so here goes with the question. How is your belief in Jesus demonstrated in your living? How do you demonstrate your belief in Jesus in the way you live? What do you think? Loving. Absolutely. What else? How do you demonstrate your belief in Jesus by the way you live and the things you do? Whoa, there was about six. Okay. Showing mercy. Compassion. Serving. Pardon? Godly, godly example to your family, absolutely. What are some other things that you do and the way you live and the way we exist that proclaim the faith we have in Jesus, the belief we have? Accepting others. Accepting others. To, by telling them about Jesus, absolutely. Being in the Word. Obeying. What else? Forgiveness. Joy. Taking risks. Praying. Peace. In the middle of trouble. What's that? Thinking like Jesus. Yeah. Those are all great things and you're all... They're all right. Those are things that we do in our lives that speak forth where the, our belief in Jesus kind of leaks out around the edges and it's visible without necessarily words. Now, the reason I ask that is because I wanted to start off the morning with belief because the passage we're going to be looking at is not about belief. Um, it's about unbelief. And so we're going to be in, in John chapter 18, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. But before I dive into the chapter, in order that we might understand how the chapter, what it's saying and how it's going to impact us, we need to understand how it fits into John's Gospel. So I'm going to do a little bit of backtracking before we get into chapter 18. Um, John's Gospel is unique in the way he tells a story compared to the other uh, three Gospels. One of, the, one of the major unique things about John's Gospel is that we are insiders, See, the prologue begins before Jesus ever shows up. Almost the entire first chapter is the prologue. And it tells us, some very, uh, tells us very clearly some very important things about Jesus. It tells us, one, that He is the eternal second person of the Godhead. He is the eternal Logos, the one who existed before time, existed before the creation, existed with God and is God. That's a very important distinction, and it's told very, in very clear terms. It's not mistakable. It's kind of like the narrator in the prologue is taking us under his wing alongside of us and letting us in on some very important facts, bringing us into his confidence. It's much in the same way that things happen in Job. In Job's story in the Old Testament, things are happening to him, and as the reader, we're aware of those things, 
when Job isn't. Okay, so we, uh, the prologue, in the prologue, John tells us very clearly that Jesus is the second person in the Godhead. He is divine. He also tells us somewhat of his mission and his plot. He says Jesus came to reveal the Father. In John 1.18 it says that, that Jesus reveals the Father to us. And later on, after the prologue, still in the first chapter though, uh, John the Baptist tells us that this is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. So the prologue really clues us in. In the beginning part of John, before Jesus really even arrives on the scene, we know who he is. We know it really clearly. And what that produces in us is, is kind of a, uh, a perspective that's different from the people who are participating in the gospel. Okay, And we know clearly that Jesus' mission is twofold. One, that he is to reveal the Father by proclaiming the truth. And the truth here is not so much a proclaimed message as it is a person. The, the truth is Jesus, the true vine, the one who is truth. And the second thing that Jesus came to do, other than reveal the Father, is to take away the sins of the world. And that is his twofold mission that is revealed in John. And the way that the, the plot develops in John is that Jesus, his character is really what we'd call a static character. He doesn't change any at all, for the most part. We know everything about him before he even arrives on the scene. And so throughout the whole gospel, Jesus is encountering people and entering into circumstances and using words and symbols and actions and miracles and those kinds of things to proclaim to the people who are there with him who he is. And the tension for those of us who are readers is we sit on the sidelines and go, oh, is Nicodemus going to see who he is and believe and receive eternal life? How about the woman at the well? Is she going to figure it out? Is she going to know who Jesus is? And is she going to believe? Um, the, the blind man, is he going to see who Jesus is? And so us as, as readers, as people who are participating and insiders in the story, we look on the story of Jesus as he over and over, in episode after episode, demonstrates who he is and tells us um, who he is that we might believe and trust in that and receive eternal life. Now, the word believe is in John in an overabundance. It's definitely his desire. And even at the, at the end of the book, we know his, he said, I've told you these things that you might believe. The word believe is used, I think, 200 and, I think it's 238 times in the New Testament. That means all the Gospels, all the letters, Revelation, everything. Over 90 of those times are, only in, are in, located in John's Gospel by itself. It is definitely his desire that in the actions, through the symbols, through the miracles, and in the words of Jesus, that people would believe, and especially his believers, uh, or his readers, would believe in Jesus. So that's kind of how the plot works along. So then we get to chapter 18. And now chapter 18 is so large that I'm not going to try and read it to you. (laughs) Um, I would bore you, probably, or... it it would just take up a lot of time. So what I want to do is I want to try and summarize what's going on there and that way you can track with me as we look at it. Um, Chapter 18 picks up right at the end of Jesus' time in the upper room discourse and his high priestly prayer uh, for the disciples, for himself and for us who would hear 
the message through the disciples and believe. And when they leave there, they leave out and they go to a garden, probably Garden of Gethsemane, though John's emphasis does not reside in that garden with the things that occur, like in the other Gospels, that's, that's probably where they are. Prior to their departure, um, Judas has left them and has gone and, and procured a group of people. They, the text tells us that it's soldiers and that it is um, officers of the high priest. The soldiers are Romans. And that's the only soldiers that were in town in that day. There were no other soldiers. So the Roman soldiers come hoping to keep the peace. If there is a, something that blows out of proportion, they would be able to hopefully contain that. And the officers of the high priest come with them and they are brought along uh, to make the arrest of Jesus and to bring him to be interrogated by the high priest. Okay? Jesus is in, the, the text is really good about showing us that even in a situation like this, Jesus is in control because they say, they come walking up and Jesus says, who, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. At least that's what your translation says. But in the Greek, it says, I am. He says, I am. And it says that they fall back. They're kind of blown away by that. Um, I believe it's because of what he said. I think they understood. The other times he used those phrases, I am, uh, it got him in trouble. They really didn't appreciate it because they understood the implication of who he was claiming to be. But he says, I am, and they fall back. And he says again, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, I am. You can let them go, and I'm going to come with you. So even in his arrest, Jesus is in control of the situation. God's purposes are being fulfilled, and Jesus is willingly going. He is not being corralled. He's not being strong-armed and hog-tied and taken somewhere that he doesn't want to go. He's willingly going down this road. This is the Father's plan. This is His glory. His glory in the book of John is the crucifixion, and that's where we're heading Because his two purposes, to reveal the Father and the Father's love and the Father's kingdom and to take away the sins of the world, will find the climax in the story on the cross. The glory of Jesus is the cross in the book of John. And that's where we're heading. And so um, Jesus by no means wants to skirt that at all. In fact, Peter draws a sword and chops off an ear and he says, Peter... Am I not going to drink of the cup that the Father's given me? And, uh, and has Peter put the sword away? From that place in the garden where he's arrested, he's taken, to, uh, taken before Annas. Now, Annas isn't the high priest. Uh, Annas is the father-in-law to the high priest, Caiaphas. He's Caiaphas's father-in-law. Now, but Annas was a very powerful man in the first century. He had been high priest for a number of years, uh, but had been deposed by... Pilate's predecessor as a governor. The Romans regularly did this. They would, they would depose one high priest and put another in there. It kept them in control. It kept um, the people under their control. And, uh, and so they regularly did that. So Annas was a very influential man. He had been high priest for a number of years and five of his sons became high priests uh, after him. So he has a lot of clout. And so they bring Jesus before him first. And uh, in the passage, the way that it goes is there's the arrest, and then they take him to, to Annas. But before we get to the interrogation of Annas, we have Peter following along to the, the, the courts outside the high priest's home, and that's his first place of denying Jesus. After raising a sword and cutting off an ear, 
he goes into the courts of the high priest and he denies that he uh, is a disciple of Jesus. And then the, the, the narrative takes us into the room where Jesus is and we hear Annas interrogating Jesus. He says, you know, what have you been teaching? And, uh, and Jesus responds to him what's in a way that seems to be sharp. It's, it's saying, uh, he says, I've been public, I've been bold, I've been open in what I've been teaching. If you want to know what I've been teaching, ask someone who's heard me. And for, to us as readers, we think, well, that's kind of rude or kind of sharp. And he even gets a response from the soldier who, who strikes him because of the way he responded. But Jesus was merely asking for a fair trial. Because in the Jewish, under Jewish law, the person who is being uh, accused is never questioned. <laughs> the judge never addresses them. The judge addresses the witnesses. And when two or more witnesses agree, he's toast whether or not he has anything to say or whatever defense he would make for himself. It's what the, what the witnesses say and agree upon. And if they have witnesses that agree, then the judgment comes down regardless of his responses. So Jesus wanted a fair trial in the, in the response that he gave. Um, but he gets, he gets smacked for his response to the high priest. And, and the irony that's going on is Jesus is standing before the high priest giving his testimony and boldly proclaiming what he's doing. He's like, I have been very public open. I have told what I, I've said what I've said and this is, uh, it's what I've meant. And he's being bold and not shying away from it. All the while, outside, Peter is out there saying, I, I don't know who he is. <laughs> um, it's kind of an, an irony to show that, and, and, it's a, and it's a comparison of where Jesus is and what Jesus is doing and where Peter finds himself. And we'll talk about Peter in a couple of minutes, specifically about where he is in this whole story. But, so he's taken before Annas. We have that dialogue recorded. And then it says that they took him to Caiaphas. But we don't have that as, as a recorded part of John's text. But what we have then is we go from Annas' interrogation to Peter's second and third denial of Jesus. And then Jesus is taken before Pilate. And we hear Pilate's discussion with him. And I'm not going to focus on Pilate today. I'll leave that for whoever's coming next week as they look at Pilate's uh, interaction with Jesus. So the reason that we have arrest, Peter, Annas, and Jesus, and Peter is because John is trying to show you, show us that simultaneous to Jesus' uh, proclamation and answering of questions and, and standing boldly for what he, who he is and what the Father has brought him to do, at the very same time, Peter is outside denying him. Uh, the reason it moves from one to the other is to demonstrate that those are happening simultaneously. So that's chapter 18 in a nutshell. Now, remember what our purposes are. Uh, the plot of John is that Jesus is trying to reveal the Father through, through the truth, through proclaiming the truth, and that truth is really a person, it's not a proclamation. And uh, Jesus is going to take away the sins of the world. And you say, so how does chapter 18 fit into that whole scheme? Well, because chapter 18 is not about belief. I gave you some examples of belief where Nicodemus, though we don't know that he believed right then, we see later on that he probably uh, came to a place of faith in Jesus. We have the, the woman at the well. We have all these people in John's Gospel who come to him and believe. But in chapter 18, we have unbelief. For whatever reason, 
We have both the Gentiles and the Jews, the forces that be in the first century in Judea aligned against the will of God, and they are coming against Jesus. And so the unbelief is really quite stark in this chapter as opposed to other places in the, in, the, in the text. Now, you might say, so how does John expect to show us such unbelief and that that's going to stir up belief within us? But remember, we're the outsider, we're the insiders, not the outsiders, and we, we know who Jesus is. And so as we read through the text, we see over and over Jesus proclaiming who he is with his miracles and with his words and people coming to faith. And then we come to chapter 18 with this stark unbelief and this uh, alignment of these forces against Jesus to shut him down and to shut down what God is doing through him. But the place where faith grows up in that is it doesn't work. <laughs> See, they come against Jesus. They seek to prosecute Jesus. They seek to snuff Jesus out and to kill him. And all the while, they become witnesses of the very truth of who Jesus is. They become uh, instruments to facilitate uh, the glory of Christ and the presentation of the kingdom of God as Jesus dies on the cross. Unwillingly, albeit, but they become, uh, they become witnesses of that. And, they, and they, are, they are used to facilitate Christ coming to the place where he is going to be crucified and killed, giving us the clearest picture of the Father and bringing forgiveness and redemption of sins. And that's a pretty powerful thing, that, that they go against him, but even while they go against him, God uses it to bring about his glory and his kingdom. But that's the way things are, people. You know what? Uh, God always accomplishes what he's intending to accomplish. And he does it in ways that we have no idea about, but he always accomplishes it. The difference is whether or not you're going to be a part of it willingly and receive the benefit and the blessing, or whether or not you're going to come against it and still be used of God to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in the lives of people and in the, in the presentation of his kingdom. The other thing that we see clearly in here is Peter. Now, Peter is something not to be missed, because Peter, uh, we can't say Peter is unbelieving. Because Peter is anything but unbelieving. He had a firm and, and strong belief in who Jesus was. He proclaimed who Jesus was earlier on in the passage. He didn't want Jesus to go to his death. He drew a sword and was ready to die and cut off the ear of a servant, which means he's not a great swipe with a sword, but nonetheless, he missed. But he was willing to do that to, to save his Lord who he believed in deeply. But Peter's place in this story this chapter of unbelief and uh, misunderstanding, is that just that. He, was mis- he misunderstood. Peter never grasped. It. Jesus, all through the, t- the text, is telling us, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be convicted, killed, die, and rise again on the third day. And he told him this over and over, and they didn't get it. Most of the disciples didn't get it. Peter definitely did not get it. Peter had in his mind, he knew who Jesus was. He had in his mind, this is the Messiah, the King of Israel. He's come. We've seen his miracles. We know who he is. And he's going to rise and bring about all the promises that Israel's been waiting for. The forgiveness of sins. God ruling from Zion. The throwing off of the Romans and all those things. He probably had all the normal messianic uh, understandings of who Jesus was. And Jesus just wasn't coming that way and wasn't doing those things. So we have Peter 
continually getting confused throughout the narrative, but, and, then, and then he draws the sword and tries to defend Jesus, and Jesus tells him to not do that. I think by the time Jesus is taken away from the garden, Peter is one confused guy. He knows deeply and truly who Jesus is, but he just doesn't understand why is this happening? Why are they going to kill him? Why are they arresting him? Why is all this happening? This is not the way it's supposed to go. And you know what happens when we get befuddled like that, where we don't understand things and we're stumbling and unsure. We start trying to reconcile things ourselves, don't we? We try, try pulling things in and trying to understand how the whole thing's working, and we work really hard at that. And, and you can see that that's part of what Peter's doing. And Peter doesn't run away. Peter follows. And he goes into the house, uh, into the garden outside of Annas' house. And he's, he's there. But when the, the, the accusations of being a disciple come to him, he responds not out of faith, but he responds out of fear because he's not sure what's going on and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And he responds out of fear. And he responds to protect himself. And he responds and denies Jesus. And we know, we know that that was a bitter thing in his life. And, and you'll see that at the end of the book when he's restored. It's a beautiful thing. But you can tell it was a bitter thing in his life as well. And so we have this chapter in the, at, towards the end of the book as we're heading to the cross, as the glory of Christ is about to be revealed. And God is showing us the unbelief of those and the misunderstanding of Peter uh, as to what's happening. And you might say, that's great, Kelly. Thanks for that. I appreciate the summary and the synopsis of what's happening in chapter 18. What does that do for me? And I tell you what I think. I think there's a couple of things that we need to take notice of. One, that Jesus' sharpest attack and the most informed unbelief came from a community of faith who were waiting for Messiah. You can't miss that. You can't miss the fact that the unbelief came from those who knew the most. Those who had the most faith. Those who believed in God and believed that He was sending a Messiah. Those are the ones who came at Him the sharpest and the hardest and rejected Him in unbelief. Whatever their reasons, whether it was because they... uh, didn't agree with the things he was teaching and doctrinally, or whether it was because they were greedy and they wanted power, or whether it was because they were afraid of him, or whether it was because they believed that if we followed him, Rome's going to crush us. Who knows what the reasons are? There are probably many of them. We know that since chapter 11, they've been planning how to kill him, though, because Caiaphas said that, that it's better for one man to die than the whole country to die. So, the... It can't be missed, you guys, that the ones who should have been looking for him and ready for him were the ones who missed him. Um, As I was studying in Bible college and seminary, that used to be the scariest thing to me. (laughs) As I tried to get all my theology right and get things put together and and get everything figured out, I, I was constantly reminded as I looked at the text that the people who should have seen him missed him. And not only did they miss him, they did not believe in him and they railed against and came against the work of God through his Messiah. You can't miss that, guys. That's an important thing for us to learn from this chapter. And I'll tell you how that applies in a minute. The other thing that I think we need to recognize is that Peter's 
actions weren't actions of unbelief. They were actions of being mistaken, of not understanding what God was doing. Not because it, it wasn't spoken, Jesus spoke it, but because I think of his own preconceived ideas, which probably most of Israel shared with him. It wasn't just Peter out in left field. But what they had learned and what they had been taught and what they had expected God to do and how God was going to work and what he was going to do in history for Israel. Those were all things that, that Peter had really clearly in his mind. And God just didn't do things that way. Jesus didn't function that way. And, and that threw him out of step. So far out of step that he was actually in the way part of the time with a sword cutting off an ear. And, and then later uh, didn't know how to respond and responded out of fear to protect himself. That can't be missed either. That you can be sincerely faithful and be sincerely wrong and misunderstand. Needs to be remembered. Needs to be taken out of that. Now you say, why do we need to know those two things? Because we're the church and we're the believing community. We're the ones who know who Jesus is. We're the ones who know what he's accomplished and what God has done through Christ and his redemption. We're the ones who know that God works in this world and is active in this world and is doing things in this world even today. We're the ones who know that. So my question to you is, where is God working in our world today? What things is he stirring up in the hearts of people? And what of those things are uncomfortable for us? Whether it's because of our doctrine or the way we think we understand things or because it's um, uncomfortable uh, in, in style. Maybe there's different worship styles and different ways that people want to express their faith in Christ and their Christianity. What is God doing in this world to stir up His people and to redeem people it's important for us to keep in mind that the ones who should have seen those things in the first century missed them and stood against them and it would be very easy for us should we get in the mindset that we understand how God works in this world that we could very easily find ourselves in the same place of unbelief and standing against the work of God. It's very important that the church not find themselves there. So my question to you, what is God doing in the culture around you? What's he doing in the young people? What's he doing uh, in other denominations and in other uh, styles and expressions of Christianity? What are those things that God is working and how can we join him in them? Because that's our role, is to join God in what he's already doing. The other reason that I highlight Peter is because all of us have an idea of how things are supposed to work. We know how God is working. We know what He's going to do in our lives and what someone else's lives. We see what they need and what needs to happen. And we need to remember that we might just be mistaken. And we might not have it all figured out. And we don't want to act in such a way, not in unbelief, like, though, like could be if we uh, just railed against it and disagreed. Um, but we... We want to be careful that we don't act in, by misunderstanding and find ourselves like Peter stepping in the way rather than walking along with what God is doing and participating in that. See, God is still going to accomplish what He's going to accomplish, guys and gals, ladies and gentlemen. 
God is going to do what He wants to do. The difference is some who stand against it and rail against it and don't recognize the movement of God in their midst, they will still be part of what God uses to uh, bring about the glory that He wants to bring about. But what happens is they just don't get the blessing for that. They don't get to be a part of it willingly. They end up being a part of it uh, unwillingly. And they miss out on the glory. Same with Peter. Peter came about and he was a good guy. I mean, most of us identify with Peter because he fumbles around a lot and puts his foot in his mouth. And I know I, I appreciate that because I've done that plenty of times. And so I, I really identify with Peter. And Peter was the premier disciple. He was the first You ever see a list of disciples? Peter's always named first. He is the number one guy. But he still got in the way and he still struggled here. And it was because he didn't understand. And because his understandings got in the way of what God was actually wanting to do. And we don't want to be there either, do we? So you say, well, what does it look like to really respond in faith, in belief, Kelly? What do I do? And And I... Rather than tell you what I think, I'll tell you first what John thought. And John thirteen fifteen, he says, after washing the feet of the disciples, he goes, I've done this so that you'll now do it to others. In other words, I want you to serve other people in a very lowly way, in a way that not many people would have wanted to do to wash the feet of someone else. So go into their lives and serve them humbly. Thir- John thirteen thirty four through 35 says, If you have love one for another, they will know that you are my disciples. They'll know that. We're to love. John in John fifteen he says, The fruit that comes off of being hooked into the vine is love that we love. You know, I'll I'll pause there for a minute. Lots of times in Christendom we think that uh, the way that we're really going to subvert this worldly paradigm is through our morality. And I'm not trying to say we should be immoral. But we think that Christians, our morality, that is, that's what's going to make the statement of who we are and it's going to subvert this worldly paradigm. That's not true. Our love is what subverts this world. Our love is what is so counter to what this world sees and how it believes and what it views to be about being human and being in community. Love. Love is what is different. Love is what Christ brought to us. Love is what the church is supposed to manifest. And by that love, we will subvert the paradigm of this world. We will proclaim a kingdom that is for everyone. And we will proclaim uh, a redemption that is for everyone by our love. In John fourteen twelve, Jesus says, We will do the works of Jesus. And we'll do more, greater works than Him. Those who are with Him. And what is that? You say, well, what are those works? Read the Gospels. He fed the, poor, the hungry, took care of the poor, healed the sick, forgave the outcast. Most importantly, just in what we're coming to this week, He took, up, took on the affliction of a people upon Himself. He stood in their place. And if we are His, we're called to do the same. To take on that affliction of other people. To love people, to serve people, to heal, to feed, to forgive. That's our mandate. That's how we look like Jesus. And then the last example, 
from John would be John 20, 21 and 23, though we haven't got there yet in our text. Of, by preaching, Jesus will tell them, he'll breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit. And he'll say, forgive sins or retain sins. That's their mission. Um, how many of us have taken God's forgiveness out lately for a, a spin? <laughs> I mean, we're to be a people that take the forgiveness of God with us and proclaim it to those around us and offer it up to those who need it the most and tell them, you're forgiven. You're clean. If you want to know what to do, that's what we should be about. That's what we can do. So the challenge to you today, church, is to ask, what does it look like when they look at us from outside? What does it look like? What do we look like? Do we look like a political group that's aligned against abortion and gay marriage? Or do we proclaim a kingdom of love? Do we serve those who have nothing? Do we reach out to those who everyone else rejects? Do we feed the poor? Do we clothe those who need clothes? Do we offer forgiveness to a world steeped in guilt and bound up in sin? Do we proclaim a Jesus who took care of all that in his glorious point on the cross? That's our role. And so what we need to learn from this passage, one, is to be careful that we don't become those who miss what God is doing in our midst and do not join in because we think it's wrong and it can't be from God and we stand against it and thus miss our blessing. We're the ones who lose. God will still accomplish what He's going to do because God is God and His Word does not fail and His intentions are not thwarted. But we want to be on the side that's helping that happen, not the side standing against it. And what do you expect God to do? And what is the ways that you expect Him to work? And could He just maybe be doing something a little different than you plan? And could you, by chance, be mistaken? Those are the things for us to remember and the things that we're supposed to be doing. Because a church that doesn't look like Him might not be following Him. You know? Uh, Philip Yancey said that there's something wrong when the people who say they're following Jesus, oh, pardon me, when the people who ran to Jesus run away from those who are following him. I'd say that they run away because we don't look like the one that we follow. So our challenge today as we head to the cross is to take into consideration where we stand and what God is doing around us and to be a part of the kingdom's movement. That's our challenge. So I started off this morning with faith. I asked you, what are faithful, believing things that you do, right? Because I knew we were getting into unbelief as our passage. So we started off with that. Now we've talked about unbelief and what, that, what message that brings to us. And now we're going to have a baptism. And uh, that is one of the most beautiful, wonderful testimonies of belief that I'm aware of. So we're going to have that right now.
Okay. <laughs> it's not going to shock you, Dennis. Try it now. Okay. Is it on now? I don't think it's on. Oh, there we go. Well, good morning. I want to introduce a... Sorry. Uh, you're not my wife. that he has for his friends, for his family, 
He's a pastor. Do you know that kid? Do you guys have that kid now?
That's a good way to end up a sermon that was steeped in unbelief for us to remember uh, maybe our own time of when we confessed Jesus as our Savior when we was baptized. I remember that day, and that's a pretty sweet remembrance. So let's, uh, I got a couple of announcements to remind you of. They're going to come up here next Sunday. Normally, Cole, over the last couple of years, has had a, a Good Friday service. So we come here specifically on Good Friday for a Good Friday service. However, because of where we're at in the text in our teaching time, um, we're going to be text-driven this year because next Sunday, uh, the text for Sunday is the passage that we would normally have on Good Friday. So next Sunday's service is going to be different. It's going to be really great. Uh, it's going to be something to experience, and I would highly encourage you to come. But we want to make sure that you're aware that we need to have you in your seats by the time that we're supposed to start. Um, You guys love to hang out and and talk and converse, and we see that every Sunday. For one Sunday, we need to have you come uh, get in your seats on time because the lights are going to go down, and uh, we're going to have a very special service remembering the crucifixion of our Lord. So please come. uh, Please come on time. And, and have a seat. And uh, the second thing is we'll have uh, four different options for you to worship on Easter. We're going to have uh, the sunrise service at 7 a.m. at Park Center Pond. And then there will be an 8 a.m., a 9.30 a.m., and an 11 a.m. service here at the church. We encourage you to come out and celebrate the risen Christ with us and to be encouraged and, re- and to remember the hope that that brings to us. So if you would join me in prayer, we're going to end this service with no music. Um, We're just going to end it with a prayer and a desire to walk out and be different. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, the truth of who you are. Thank you that your kingdom is not thwarted, that you use us, Lord, to bring about the glory of your kingdom and that it shines bright into the world around us when we walk in faith with you, when we trust in what you're doing and join you in the midst of it, when we allow you to set the understanding of things and not try and understand it ourselves, Lord, and when we are led by your Spirit. My prayer for us, Lord, is that each of us this morning as we leave from here, that our hearts would be stirred up in the areas that you want to touch, that we would walk out of here and that we would look like Jesus as we leave here and as we live in the world and that people would be drawn to your glory, that your kingdom would be presented and that you would be glorified in our living, Lord God. And we just ask that you would bless us and keep us from unbelief and keep us from misunderstanding that we might walk willingly and happily in the things that you are doing and receive the blessing of your kingdom as we participate in it. Father, we love you and we praise you and we worship you. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son who died for us, Christ Jesus. Amen. Go and look like Jesus. Thanks, man. That was better than that.